much. Good morning. Welcome to Emmaus Church. My name's Nathan. Happy to see you here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us if you're with us online. Glad that you're uh, going to participate from your homes with us. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible or a notes card. Um, I'm going to do kind of an unusual sermon today. It won't be the typical thing, but it'd be really helpful to have a notes card, I think. Um, I feel like church is often a very strange thing uh, for, for many of us. Um, and what I want to do as we kick off this new series on the church in August is explain, take today to explain a little bit about why we do what we do. Um, it's hard to engage in something if you don't know the reason that you're doing it, right? So, um, so we won't really like go through a specific text today, but I hope that this will be really helpful and it will sort of set the stage for this next series that we're kicking off. I want to welcome new sixth graders um, who are joining us for the first time today, sixth graders out of the kids' ministry today. Welcome, guys. Glad you're here. This is what a sixth grader looks like, I know, because I live with one. And uh, so this is, you know, born around 2009, the very tail end of what they're calling Gen Z, um, about 12 years old. When I, when I was this age, I did not know Jesus. I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. My, my family was not Christian. Um, and, but things were about to change for me when I, was, when I was 12 years old. And I remember asking big questions when I was 12 years old. I remember asking spiritual questions when I was 12 years old. I remember having this deep longing for a purpose that was better than baseball, which was about the biggest thing I could imagine when I was 12 years old. At 12 years old, asking big questions, having deep longings, looking for my identity like all middle school kids, looking for my purpose. This is what you do when you're 12, 13, 14. And the fact that I had no relationship with Jesus when I was 12, but that I had a real powerful, life-shaping relationship with Jesus when I was 13 makes me just, it's just one of the reasons why I feel like middle school ministry, the life of the church as perceived by the middle school student is just such a critical thing. This is such a critical part of a, of a young person's life, middle school, 12, 13, 14. I know they look young. I know they're crazy. I know they're awkward. I know they haven't discovered personal hygiene in many cases or whatever. They're loud. They're super fun. And they have unlimited potential. They don't know yet the things that cause us to give up. By God's mercy, most at this age have still been sheltered from some of the hard things, and they still believe that they can have this amazing, do whatever, be whomever you want kind of a, a life. So from a spiritual formation standpoint, I think middle school is hands down the most critical part of a, of a person's life. Um, for the first time, a young teen is actually cognitively able to think about and talk about ideas, hypotheticals, not just concrete, do this, don't do that. This is when we start to ask the question, why? This is when we start to ask the question, how does that work? And this is when the church needs to have good answers. Not easy, clean, but good, well thought through, authentic answers to this question. And this is why engaging, um, why it's so important that the church have uh, loving, committed adults who are devoted to Jesus and are spending time with their kids, with the middle school kids. 
This is why it's so critical that we have folks volunteering to support middle school kids. And this is why it's so important, middle school kids, sixth graders, that you're in here with us because you also need a multi-generational context. That means people of all different ages to begin to figure out what it means to live for Jesus, not just in your little sixth grade ghetto, but in the bigger, the bigger picture of the church, right? So welcome new sixth graders. We're so glad you're here. We need you to be here. We need you. You need us, and we need you, and we're glad that we can spend some time worshiping together um, going forward. So I'm starting a new sermon series today. It's called, They Were Devoted to Fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship, which is one of the ways the early Christian church is described. Luke writes this in a book called Acts chapter 2. He says, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So for the next four weeks, we're going to be chasing this theme of devoted to fellowship. Today, in honor of the new sixth graders who are here and a tune-up, as a tune-up for many of us, I'm going to teach on why, the why that's, let's see, the why that's behind the way that we worship. So clever, I couldn't even say it. The why behind the way we worship. This will be a reminder to many of you. It will be brand new content to many of you, and it's, I hope, will be helpful to all of you. Whether you agree with the way we worship here, the way we do church here or not is not the point. I don't even agree with everything that we do here, uh, but I want you to understand the reason, the why, the purpose, the philosophy, the intention that shapes what we do, what we do, that shapes what we do. Um, so there are four main movements in, in, this, in this worship gathering that we go through when we, when we come together. Like a football game has four quarters. Historic Christian worship has four distinct movements. And if you've ever pray, played sports, you also know that there's something that comes right before the game starts. That's called pregame, right? Pregame's super important. The, the better, the more intentional you are with your pregame, the better you'll be in the game, the better you will perform in the game. You'll play your best game. You'll be most ready if you engage in pre-game. We Christians, when we gather for worship, there's also a pre-game of sorts. It's the drive to church or the walk to church. Some of you have, have taken this even to a place of preparing Saturday night for church. That's like, that's like next level pre-game. But for many of us, it's the, it's the drive to church. And if the drive to church is a focused time of preparation and anticipation for what we're about to do together, then you enter in ready to worship, ready to start, ready to be here. And if the drive to church is full of chaos and conflict and you're playing video games in the backseat and you're listening to trash music and you're gossiping about people, then you probably come in and you're not super ready to encounter the living God, okay? Like, it's, it's pretty ridiculous um, once you have any sense of understanding about who God is that you would just boldly barge in to the presence of God. It makes a lot of sense, in other words, that you would go through a season, even if it's a short season, of preparing to encounter the living God if that's, in fact, what you want to do. And people have been doing this since the Psalms. There's 15 psalms. There's a book in the Bible called Psalms. They're poems, they're songs, they're worship. They're fabulous because they reveal every human emotion. If you don't know how to pray, pick a psalm, read it, ask God for help to believe and to mean the words that are being said. You'll find anger, resentment, uh, jealousy, joy, 
Um, all kinds of emotions in the Psalms. There's 15 of the Psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascents. And these are songs that were sung by followers of God as they approached Jerusalem to worship. It was literally up a hill. That's why they're called the Songs of Ascents. They're also called the Pilgrim Psalms, the Psalms of Steps, some people call them, because we're literally walking up to a place where we're going to worship, where we're going to participate in the festivals of the community, where we're going to pray to God and worship God. Let me read the first line. Of just a few, if you want to look these up later, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. Those are the Psalms of Ascent. Here's the first line of Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? It's not the mountains. It's the next line. My help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. They're singing this song as they're approaching church, as they're approaching worship. Here's the first line of Psalm 122. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Somebody said, let's go to church. And the invitation is to rejoice in that. That's a challenge, isn't it? It is for us in our home. It's almost always a battle in the mornings. I rejoiced when somebody said to me, Let's go to the house of the Lord. So here's these pilgrims. They're walking up to Jerusalem. It's hard. It's laborious. Let's rejoice together. Let's prepare our hearts and minds. Let's stop thinking about the conflict at work, about the trouble at the house, the broken pipe. Let's prepare to worship the Lord. Here's the first line of Psalm 124. If the Lord, here's a great way to do this. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, you can imagine this happening. If the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have swept over us. The rainwaters would have swept us away. What are they doing? They're remembering the the greatness of God. They're remembering the acts of God in their history, in their family. I don't really feel like worshiping today. All right, so let's all remember the goodness of God, the way he's revealed his goodness to us in our family's life. Let's recall his power in our lives to begin to tune our hearts and minds to this invitation to engage in real worship of a real God. It's powerful. Now, the Psalms of Ascent are a kind of pregame worship. The more intentional your pregame routine, the better prepared you are to encounter the living God. So let's Um, Let me take us quickly through the four main movements of a worship gathering as according to the pattern that we embrace here. There are other patterns. But we do things a little bit differently here from the way many of us are used to, and it it can be powerful or it can just be confusing. So let me walk us through this. The first movement of worship that we embrace here is the call to worship. This is what Melissa just did from the piano when she read Psalm 34. Come magnify the Lord with me. That's what Psalm 34, I think verse 32 or 4, we have it engraved in our wedding rings. Come magnify the Lord with me. It can be as simple as let's stand and worship. It can be as simple as let's sing a song to begin. Or it could be a, a story or a formal liturgical invitation to recognize the reality of God. Melissa did a great job inviting us into worship. She's calling us into worship. Did you know hallelujah is a call to worship? It's it's plural. Let us praise Yahweh. That's what hallelujah means. It's a call to worship. It's a one-word call to worship. Hallelujah. Let us worship. Let's praise the Lord together. 
Why do we begin with a call to worship? Why do we begin with it? Two reasons. One, because we need it. We need a call to worship. It's like, time to eat. Or this is what I'll be saying a lot next week. Time to get ready for school, right? We need it. We, we, we give the call to worship because we need the call to worship. We need to like hear this is the time. Whether you want to hear it or not, you need it. I need it. I need the rhythm of Sundays. I need the call to worship in community. I want to, I naturally feel tuned to this rhythm some of the time. Some of the time, I feel preoccupied with other things. Left to my own, I may not come. I may not engage in worship. Certainly, in the complexity of worship with others, with needs and grief and, and uh, challenges. So I need the call to worship. Why do we give a call to worship to start? Because we need it. Second reason, we begin with a call to worship because what we're doing here is more than information. This is about transformation. It's not meant to be passive. It's meant to be active. Worship is not something that you spectate. Worship is something in which you are meant to participate. So when you hear the call to worship, whether you're in sixth grade or you're 60, right, be here. Answer the call. When you hear the call to worship, answer the call. Be open. Be ready. Answer the call. Engage, Maverick. That's my favorite quote from Top Gun. Engage, Maverick. Participate. Understand, and understand this, because I can, this can sound like locker room uh, coach talk. The call to worship is a merciful call. Please understand that. The call to worship is a merciful call. So whether your pregame, your pre-church routine was focused and peaceful or it was chaotic and divisive and you're not even really getting along with the people that you're sitting next to this morning, you can step into this place that is devoted to worship of the living God. You can come into this place, you can hear Melissa or one of our other worship leaders issue a call to worship, and you can say, thanks, I needed that. And you can answer the call. You can engage. I am choosing to engage in worship. Because the Spirit will not coerce you in, but you're always invited. First part of worship is the call to worship. Second part of worship is the word the hearing of the word of God. This is when somebody reads a portion of the Bible, whether the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, the very words of Jesus Christ, and then shares a, a teaching based on the words, on the Bible. This is the sermon. The second movement of worship is the sermon. Why do we preach as part of worship? Have you ever thought about that? Why do we preach as part of worship? Ultimately, it's so that we can see God. The purpose of the Bible is to reveal God to humanity. That's the purpose of the Bible. It's not to give detailed scientific history. It's not to explain things that, you know, that we demand of it. it the, the purpose of the Bible is to reveal God, God's nature, God's purpose to humanity. So the ultimate big picture point of every sermon based on the Bible should be to be able to see God. We preach so that people can see God. When I was in junior high, I started coming to church one time I snuck up on the platform and got behind the pulpit because I was so curious. At the church where we started going, they had this huge immovable pulpit. 
And the pastor was like, here. And I never saw, like, what was behind this thing? It was so interesting. I was so curious. So when nobody was looking, I snuck up here, and I looked behind the pulpit. I wondered, what's behind this big, huge desk? There was a little piece of paper taped to the, to the, the front of it right here, like the, the, the face of it. A little piece of paper with the words typed and taped. Sir, we would see Jesus. Isn't that good? This was our pastor's way of reminding himself that the big point of anything he had to say that morning, if people didn't see Jesus as a result of his sermon, he'd miss the mark, right? At least he needed to uh, attempt to bring the gospel to people in a way that they understood, right? Sir, we would see Jesus. What our team of preachers is trying to do when we deliver the word in a worship setting like this a few things. One, we want to be under, we want the word to be understandable. That's why we study and we learn the historic content, context, the original um, setting. We learn the intent as well as we can of the original author, we, because we want it to be understandable, which is challenging. The Bible is written in a different language, two thousand, three thousand years ago on the other side of the world, and we're trying to like figure it out. So. We, we try to make it understandable. Secondly, we want the word to be obeyed. That's the point. So we push towards clarity because you can't obey something unless, unless it's clear. You can't obey instructions that aren't clear. So we, we try to get a handle on a text to at least so that we can invite people into a clear response, into, into obedience. We're not trying to be funny and we're not trying to entertain a lot of really good communicators are funny and entertaining. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Um, but it can be really goofy if you're not funny. And I'm, I'm just not very funny. So we, we, don't, we try not to be funny or entertaining. What we, we, we prioritize authenticity above those things. Okay. That's what we try to like take to the bank. Authenticity. So before I preach to anyone else, friends, I preach to myself. Okay. I, I will never preach a sermon that I haven't applied to myself before I preach it. You can always ask me, how are you responding to that text in the Bible? You can always ask me that. I am rarely the perfect example of obedience to Jesus, but I'm always wrestling with what I'm preaching. Always wrestling with it. I'm always trying to get to a place where I'm obeying it. So you can all, it's free game. You can always ask me that question. You should be able to ask any of our preachers that question. How are, you, how are you working this out? Because we value authenticity. We're not trying to put some veneered, perfect, overly polished message out. We're trying to be authentic. And, and I hope that you will be too, that you will be applying the word to your life, that you won't just listen, but you'll consider the word carefully. I hope you'll have your Bibles open when we're digging into a text. I hope you'll be able to see what comes before it, what comes after it. Who's writing this again? Is this before Jesus, after Jesus? You get to start to build a narrative in your mind. I hope you'll take notes. I hope you'll bring a journal. We always hand out sermon notes page so that you can engage, you can write some stuff down. And it's not just, your, not just writing down what the preacher's saying. Hopefully you're writing down what the Spirit is saying through the preacher, through the word, through the sermon. This is so funny to me. Um, this happens. Uh, often people will say, that was a good sermon. To which I try to consistently respond, thank you, why? And sometimes, maybe like 10 times a year, 
the person will say, well, when you said X, Y, Z, that just really hit me. I really needed to hear X, Y, Z. Thank you for saying X, Y, Z. That was, that was really helpful to me. And I know that I didn't say X, Y, Z. I know that I didn't because if my sermons are written down, they're written down right here. I know what I say and what I don't say. I didn't say X, Y, Z. But they heard X, because God said X, Y. God spoke through the sermon, through the word. They felt this impression. Maybe, they, maybe I needed to ask them why was it a good sermon to even, even invite them to, um, to articulate what it was they sensed from it wasn't me. It was the Lord. I, that's so encouraging to me. So first, call to worship. Second, we receive the word of God. That's what we do. And then third movement in, in our worship gatherings is to respond to the word. And this is what one of the things that makes this church feel pretty uncommon. And I would say this is the most important part. And the reason I say it's the most important part is because I'm referencing Jesus' brother James, who wrote, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. After we hear the word, we respond to the word here at Emmaus, or at least you have the opportunity to, at least seven different ways to respond to the word. Go through them really fast. After hearing about the love and the grace and the mercy that God gives us through Christ, the very first thing we do is we invite others to share the love and the grace and the mercy with others. We use the old phrase for this practice. It's called the passing of the peace, where you're invited to respond to the message that Jesus loves you by actively loving and welcoming somebody next to you. So I will say, may the peace of Christ be always with you, and you respond by saying... Right? And then I say, greet somebody with the peace of Christ. And whether it's natural for you to say, I say this. I say, may the peace of Christ be with you or peace to you. If that's too weird for you, that's fine. It's not that. Say good morning. Say you're welcome here. I'm so glad to see you. What's your name? I've never met you. This is the intent behind this. What are we doing? Hospitality? No. It's rooted in response to the word. We'll share news about our community. That's another way we respond to the word. These are not just announcements. We value community. We value the relationships. This is not a show. This is a family. The relationships that we have with one another are critical, and they are so valuable to us. And so we want to share what's going on in our community. Opportunities to connect, needs. And so we'll share some news about our community. Third, we'll respond to the word of God by sharing some of our resources. This is weird for some people. We actually have a common purse in the sense that many of us share some of our money, the money that we've been entrusted with, to fund the ministries of this community. I mean, the things that we do during the week, I, I could take probably five, ten minutes every week telling you what we've done this week in terms of like where we've invested money, who we've helped. It's, it's super inspiring. It's all money that we've gathered and we've shared together in response to the word. We respond to God's word by celebrating Holy Communion. And this includes several things. We confess sin. We pray for ourselves. We take a minute to pray for others. It's really hard to pray. It's hard for me to pray. I do better praying if I can connect it with something physical. We've got candles in the back and these old pictures of scenes from the life of Jesus and prayers written on the wall. 
What is that? That's an, that's an opportunity to try to connect something physical, tangible to this mysterious thing called prayer. Sometimes I don't know what to pray. I'll go back there and I'll light a candle. No, it doesn't make your prayer go faster or anything like that. It's just a way to help you engage in the activity of prayer holistically, right? We'll talk more about that next week. We pray for others. We declare the gospel written in this prayer that we all say together. We get out of our seats. We come forward and we receive the body and blood of Christ in the bread and in the cup. This is a response to the word. By the way, do you see on your notes page that there are, like, if you, I forgot to tell you to turn your notes page sideways. You probably figured that out. Um, there's, like, these, this, like, two-peak mountain image that's meant to indicate that there's sort of an acceleration to the first sort of pinnacle of our gathering. That's the delivery of the word. And then there's an even higher point in the gathering, which is the sharing of the word together at the Lord's table. So this is sort of like the, if, we were, if you were writing music, there's two crescendos in this gathering. And the, and the biggest is when we respond to the word by receiving, by faith, the word of God in communion. Um, good. And then we just keep on singing. We respond, uh, we respond by just more singing. Question. Why does somebody go to baseball practice? Practice baseball, right? Why does somebody go to the gym? To work out ostensibly, right? Depends on what time of day you're there. Um, what time does a person, or why does a person go to worship? It's to worship, right? I mean, this is just so fundamental. So I want to encourage you, just bluntly, do the work. I want to encourage all of us, let's do the work. You're not earning points, but you are being invited into a communal act of devotion to the living God. So, so engage in it. You are responding to the love of God in worship. That's what this is about. A common question that people ask one another after church is, how was church? And typically, the response reveals that the intention of that question is an evaluation of the preacher's performance right? Or maybe the worship leader's performance. How was church? I want to challenge you very practically to respond to that question as an evaluation of your own participation in worship. How was church? I want to encourage you to be able to respond with a concrete action, some way you responded to God in worship. I wrote this down in worship today because I need to think about this more. I need to apply this truth to my life. Or I prayed for this person because of this thing going on, or I confessed this sin, because I haven't been loving my family the way I should. So I confessed this sin. What did you do in church? How was church? Church was good because I did this. I confessed a sin. I received communion today, or I shared some money with the church today, or I served this ministry. I welcomed people. I served the kids. I, I, I prepared coffee or whatever, or I hugged this person how was church? It was good. I, I tried to encourage this person. That's, that's why it was good. And then finally, friends, the fourth movement in our gatherings is the blessing, the benediction. Why do we do this good word at the end? Because we're send, it's the sending forth into the world to do restoration. That's why we do this. We end with a blessing because now we're being commissioned to engage the world. We have just done this thing together called worship. Why do we worship? We worship for God. And we worship for ourselves. We also should worship for the sake of our neighbor. 
And if what you're doing here in worship, friends, does not impact the way you live your life and interact with your neighbor, we got to figure that out. We, we have to figure that out. Because this worship on Sunday is designed, that's the whole point of the blessing. Now go into the world in peace, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Like engage the world with hope and love and integrity. So that's the why behind the way that we worship here at Emmaus. And granted, this pattern is uncommon in this area. It is uncommon in this era. So in big, historic, worldwide sense, the pattern of worship that we use here is not uncommon. But if you visit 10 other churches in Placer County today, they probably won't be structured in the same way that we structure our worship gatherings. And here's the short answer. The short answer for that is that the pattern of Christian worship adopted in North America for the last 200 years, the, the, the pattern that has taken hold in this part of the world is, is based on the tent revivals of the 1800s, the big tent revivals, the great awakenings that swept across North America and Great Britain, were these big tent revivals led by these phenomenally gifted evangelists, People like D.L. Moody, who was a Civil War chaplain, uh, started the YMCA, invented Sunday school, you can argue, because he started welcoming kids in to, to, who didn't go to school because they were working during the week. So let's have Sunday school for those kids. Becomes this massively successful evangelist, preaches to a million people before the invention of the microphone. 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, there was a professional baseball player named Billy Sunday, Huge evangelist in the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties, drove a really like fancy buggy <laughs> and uh, had like fur coats and craziness, preached to a ton of people. Amy Semple McPherson, a Canadian, started the Foursquare Gospel Church, a radio ministry in the 1930s. Had a big revival, big tent revival. And then Billy Graham, 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, preached to more human beings than any other human being. They all followed the same pattern for their revivals. What was the pattern? A ton of singing to warm up to the speaker. But hold on, before the speaker, there's a special number sung by a celebrity performer often. And then here comes the evangelist, and he offers a very basic, hard-hitting message intended to reveal the possibility of salvation in Jesus the way to a relationship with God, the way to begin. And that's followed by an altar call. You hit the sawdust trail, you come forward, and you accept Christ. That's the invitation. You begin a relationship with Jesus. And then there's a closing song, and it's done. Increasingly, churches in America adopted the pattern of revivals for regular Sunday worship because they just seem to be so successful in certain contexts. I would argue that the pattern of revival, these revival meetings, has proven effective in starting people on the journey with Jesus. I would argue that this pattern of revival has proved ineffective in leading people into an ongoing, transformational, maturing relationship with Jesus. Let me tell you a story to wrap up. I surrendered my life to Jesus in August 1985, 36 years ago this month, I was 13 years old. 
I was baptized a couple years later at the end of eighth grade, June 14th, 1987. And I distinctly remember walking up to a spiritual leader in my church about eighth grade freshman year and saying, so I, I accepted Christ. I got baptized. Now what? Like now, now what do I, now what? And, and I, I couldn't have articulated it then, but basically what I was asking is, how do I grow? Teach me how to follow Jesus. Teach me how to be with Jesus. Teach me how to grieve with Jesus. How to be a Christian in my sports teams. Teach me how to live this life of holiness that goes everywhere, not just in church. Take me beyond this start and teach me how to grow from here. I want to experience all of life as holy. I couldn't have said it like that then, but that's what I was asking. And the reason I remember this conversation, friends, is because the response that I received was so unhelpful. Essentially what the person said, I don't remember the exact words, but this is the sense I got, was this. Well... Uh, you're in. Um, you accepted Christ, you got baptized, and uh, going to heaven. So you want to do more? Um, we can invite other people. How about that? You invite other people. Yeah, just go invite other people, and we'll introduce them to Jesus. Friends, and I'm not trying to, that was probably a little bit too snarky, but um, what I needed, <laughs> what I needed, friends, early teenager, what do I need? I need somebody to not just show me how to begin a relationship with Jesus. I need somebody to show me how to grow in a relationship with Jesus that is powerful and real enough that it can handle the challenges that I'm already facing as a kid. I needed somebody to expose me to the rich tradition of the communion of saints all around the world through the history of time which has devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. I found this quote five years ago. It's my absolute favorite quote. My absolute favorite quote. By a Trappist monk named Father Raymond, died in 1990. He writes this, Miracles may show me the saint but they do not show me how he became a saint, and that is what I want to see. It is not the completed process that intrigues me. It's the process itself. Tell me what was churning in his soul as he battled his way from selfishness and the allurements of sin to the great heart of God. The why behind the way we worship here, the reason we do church the way we do it, is to use Father Raymond's words, it's because we want to become saints. To put it the way we put it, because that sounds so strange for many of us, our goal is holistic transformation within the context of a community expressing itself in compassion. In other words, we're committed to sharing life here, discovering Jesus initially and ongoing, right? And then restoring all things. And so we've intentionally embraced this fourfold pattern of worship, which for most of the history of, Christ, of the Christian church has been embraced as a way of honoring God, 
and following his son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So my hope is that this, would, that this will do its work, that you will engage, that I will engage, and this will do its work. I always preach longer than I want to. I want to take a couple questions. Really fast, does anyone have a short question about any of the stuff that I talked about, why we do what we do? Begin with the word why. We'll try to give a couple of quick. Is anything unclear? Would anything be helpful for me to quickly address? Good. Well, let's pray together. God, I pray increasingly that this gathering, this ritual, this routine, this rhythm would, would be effective, would do its work. You would be glorified. We would be transformed, that we'd be able to engage, not in some old tradition, but in a method of becoming the people you created us to be. Help us to love one another in the process, to be full of grace and patience. May we be able to engage, engage wholeheartedly. Bless these folks, Lord, with the assurance of your love for them and your desire to continue to pull them closer to yourself. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.